Happy Dad is available at a lot of your local bars and restaurants. You might even find it at some saloons. If you've enjoyed a Happy Dad, then you know it goes well with your burger, your wings, pizza, and steak. <laughs> People in California eat it with their sushi, too. Go to happydad.com find to find a bar or restaurant near you so you can watch the games with the boys while enjoying an ice-cold daddy drink. The ladies love it as well. If your bar doesn't carry Happy Dad, then ask them to call their distributor to stock up. You can't have a burger with that skinny can, can you? It's time to man up and drink Happy Dad. All right, guys. Uh, another big episode. We got Vivek Ramaswamy. Did I say that correct? Correctly? correctly? Pretty close. Vivek like Vivek, cake. Vivek cake like Ram. Okay. Like yeah, cake. Vivek Ramaswamy. You got. This it. is cool. You come in super cash. I like being casual. To be honest, I do have to wear a suit pretty often. So yeah. whenever I can get away with not wearing one, I'm pretty happy about that. That's <laughs> dope. I like that style. You yeah. just have a totally different approach you're running for president yeah. of the united states yep and uh i saw after the debates i think has it like post debate has that been like a really big kind of surge for you like it's oh, been it's all been, over the internet it's i mean been, a huge surge i would say going into the debate and afterwards i mean six months ago let's be honest nobody in this country knew who i was for sure and that's okay i mean i'm not you know i was my prior career was not in the public eye in the same way i'm a business guy mm -hmm. you guys are building a business you know what that's like yep I, Started my first major company. I just started my first company in college. That was a small company. Had some success with that. And then I started a biotech company that I built as CEO. Built an asset manager to compete against the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard. That was my world. Entrepreneurship. And then I started writing books. But when I stepped down to run for president, you know, look, I was polling it. Not 0%, but 0.0% in March. But I had a confidence that this country needs an actual vision of what we stand for. But I see a Republican Party that is complaining about the radical Biden agenda, which I don't love either. But to talk about the left, what do we actually stand for? And so I was confident when we got started that this was going to be a successful campaign. That being said, it was a laughable idea to most other people. But yes, now we're solidly in second to third and in most of the major national polls. And That's I think crazy. we're just getting warmed up. And so, yes, it's been something of a surge. One of the things you learn is politics is a dirty game. And so now the people are paying attention to us. You see how dirtily the game is played, but And that was your it. first debate, right, ever? That was like my first debate, debate ever. Yeah. Never, I mean, everybody on that stage has been political debates before. So I, it was new for me. I had fun with it. That's crazy. Yeah. So like in some polls, are you past even DeSantis? Yeah, in a few of them. In a few That's of them. That's crazy. Yeah. Probably in the averages, I'm in third, but I'm ahead of him in a few. But the reality is if you start, if, and you can fall into this trap sometimes. I fall into it sometimes, but I'm sure other politicians do. If you think about, it's about me, me, me in terms of where, where am I placing? What is my trajectory? I think it becomes tiring, but it also takes you away from your actual true purpose. And when I'm at my best is when we're doing what this whole campaign was set up to do. Speak the truth. Speak it without a filter, especially when it's hard, not just when it's easy. Say in public what other people agree with you on in private, but are, but are actually afraid to say in public. And I think that's the ballgame with this campaign. There is a gap between what people are willing to say in private and what people are willing to say in public. 
That is the best measure of the health of how we're doing as a country is how wide that gap is. We are closing that gap. I think that fear has been infectious in this country. You guys probably know this. Mm, for sure. Look at every age bracket, young people especially, but it goes for everybody. There's a culture of fear that's spread across the country faster than COVID-19. Okay, and it's in many ways far more harmful for the long run future of our country. But what I'm seeing is that courage can be infectious. Courage can be contagious too. It just requires more of us willing to actually speak with a spine. And so the challenge for me now, but we're going to try to stick to it is in the early stage of the campaign, that's easy, yeah. <laughs> right? Nobody's paying attention to you. You're some fringe outsider people are laughing at for even trying to run for president. I'm speaking my mind openly, but it turns out that was the winning strategy to get to where we are now. Yeah. So I don't want to turn into the, you know, <laughs> turn into now the stuffed suit, super pack. Does that happen? Politics. Does that happen now that you're getting more attention? There's pressure for it. There's definitely pressure on me to do that. I mean, then like what is it outside donors? interests that start pressuring you? Absolutely. Trying Absolutely. to offer you money and then. Yeah. I mean, and some of it's not even the worst, the worst ones of all are the ones that don't offer you money, but think they're entitled to, to tell you how you're supposed to think anyway. Can you explain how that works to our audience? Like the whole raising money thing and how yeah. that, how does that kind of work with like changing people's policies? So yeah, this is something it's really worth understanding. And the rule of thumb I use is the more boring it sounds, the more you should pay attention because it's designed to be boring for a reason. That applies to a lot of areas. It applies to the political process too. So in principle, the max amount you can give to a campaign is $3,300 in the primary and another $3,300 in the general election. One person? One person, yeah. Okay. So the total amount you could give is call it $6,600, $6,600. Now, that's a lot of money for, for many, most people in this country. So I'm not for sniffing sure. at that, but yeah. that's not, it's not a lot of money at the scale of changing the way politicians behave at the individual level. I mean, probably $2 billion or so will be spent by whoever wins this election all the way through the general election. So wow. somebody gives you 6,600 bucks, that doesn't really tilt the scales of anything. And that's the maximum. That's a charade. Because the real money that's getting spent in this campaign is through these independent entities that they call super PACs. Okay. So technically they can't coordinate with the campaign, but you look at other candidates in this race, hundreds of millions of dollars being spent into and out of these super PACs. So they can just walk in with like 50 mil or something or whatever. Totally, totally. And what, what qualifies, like how do you qualify to have a super PAC? So, so anybody can set one up, but it's all a charade, right? So they say you can't coordinate with the super PAC. There are multiple candidates in this race where their entire candidacy is being run by their super PAC. And it's worse because the super PAC then holds the keys where the candidate themselves, and these are in other cases, these candidates aren't bad people. I know them. They're as human beings, not bad people. But they're turned into a puppet by their super PAC that serves up binders like ahead of the first debate, you know, Ron DeSantis' super PAC serves up this binder, it's like 17 pages about literally down to the line what he's supposed to say about me on stage. And, you know, unfortunately for them, that got leaked. And so that ruined their strategy and everything else. But, I mean, put this to one side. This isn't even about the politician. These aren't bad people. It's a broken system where the donors who are putting money into that super PAC think they're entitled 
to literally serve up the script that candidates are supposed to speak from. And the problem is if that's where your bread is buttered, if that's your mother's milk, you got to do what mommy and daddy say. So I refuse to play that game. How do you go about it? Well, fortunately for me, I have lived the full arc of the American dream. I've put in 15, 16 plus million dollars of my own hard money into this campaign and we'll stop at nothing to avoid having to be somebody else's circus monkey. But not everybody's in that position. See, I mean, my parents came to this country with no money. I've gone on to found multiple multi-billion dollar companies. I mean, the media tracks my net worth more than I do on a day-to-day basis, but I've, I've earned a lot of money in this country, you know, close to a billion dollars, you could call it, if not more. Great, I'm in a position to say that I don't need to beg the other billionaires in that class. I thought you couldn't self-fund yourself though. Or is that- so, 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 you, so, so that's the one thing okay. you can do. Okay. We could rethink the whole system. But the I max amount fine. somebody can put into the campaign is $3,300 if it's not the candidate themselves. The candidate can put it on a limited amount. Okay. It's sort of, I mean, you can debate whether you like it or not, but that's the way the game is I think is that played. makes sense. Is that something that Trump did Because you're not controlled by somebody else. Trump is, did it too. Okay. Trump did that too. He put in, you know, tens of, I'm putting in tens of millions. He's put in tens of millions. That's what that looked like. But that stops, I mean, that basically makes us the only two candidates that are not dependent on the super PAC puppet class. And, and the, the thing for me that makes it difficult is, so we're in New York City. I used to live here for a long time in my 20s. My first company was based here. I understand the, and am plugged into much of the Wall Street world and otherwise, we could be raising, I mean, technically you show up at events. It's such a charade. The way it works is candidates show up at events hosted by the super PAC and then you show up and speak, but then you have to walk out of the room when they ask them for the money to show that you're not coordinating. It's just a joke. But I could be playing that game. But the problem is my views don't align with what most of those people want me to be saying. Ending the war in Ukraine, for some reason, the mega donor class, very unpopular idea. My view that the climate change agenda, okay, the the anti-fossil fuel agenda, I think it's a hoax. I think more people are dying. I don't think I know that more people are dying of bad climate change policies that restrict access to oil and gas to people around the world and in this country. That's killing more people than climate change itself. I said that on the debate stage. The number of prospective donors that I was told we lost over that, staggering. The fact that I said I would pardon Trump. I mean, this drives the Republican donor establishment nuts. And so there's a choice you face. Either you can speak your mind freely or you can speak through the prism of what the donor class wants you to say, but it's a choice. Makes so much sense. Like, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just the way the game's played. And so if, if I had it my way, we, the game would not work like this at all. But you were aware it that is it was like it this though, right? I was, but not how bad it is, right? I think that I think that this is, however bad I thought it was, I was wrong. It's far worse than we ever imagined. Mm. But we can't just sit here and complain, right? <laughs> you can't, we're in this for a reason. There's a lot of ways to drive change in this country. I was writing books, starting businesses. I'm a father of two sons. The US president is not obviously the most important role of any. I think it's gonna take everybody to play their role. But I think there's a role for the U.S. president to play. And so having been called into this race, now we're committed to it. We're not turning back. I think being successful, playing the game of a broken system, that is the only option. And then we're going to fix in our eight years in office a lot of what 
the broken rails are in the first place. I'm like a train car riding broken rails. We've already chosen to get on the broken rails. There's no getting off now. We're going to stay through till we finish the job. And then we'll lay the proper rail tracks down. Yeah. And that applies to the super PAC game. I mean, in the general election, when it comes to election integrity, single day voting with election day as a national holiday, paper ballots, so, government so issued can, voter ID to match the Is that going to be implemented this time or no? Not this time. It won't be. So that's something that you'll have to change exactly. if you go into office. Exactly. And, and this is why, uh, this is why I'm, a big part of why I'm in this race is I think this cannot be. It just can't be a 50.1 tug of war election. I think we're skating on thin ice as a country. Because either way, then the country's just going to be so divided again, right? Exactly. It will throw kerosene. I mean, if, if this is, and also even just think about the election. If MSNBC and CNN are trotting out the winner or the Monday after the Tuesday of election day, we're skating on thin ice as a country. I don't know if we have it in us right now. And then even after that, to be as divided as we are, that's why in this campaign, I don't talk about Republicans and Democrats. I don't care if you're black, white, red, or blue. If you agree on the basic rules of the road, the principles that unite us as Americans, then we're on the same team. Meritocracy, free speech, the pursuit of excellence, the rule of law, self-governance, the idea that we each have a vote in a constitutional republic that count equally, not kings in the back of palace halls, in old world England or three-letter government agency buildings in Washington, D.C. If we agree on those basic rules of the road, okay, maybe we can debate whether corporate tax rates are high or low. That's a detail. But on the basic rules of the road, I think most of us in this country actually still agree on them. I would agree, yeah. 80% probably. And half the 20 are people younger than us who never learned those ideals in the first place. We can bring them along too. And so I love Trump's policies. 90%. I love the guy too, by the way. He and I have a good relationship. He did what he was going to do. But if we want to take that agenda further and actually reunite this country, I think it's going to take somebody of a different generation that actually has a vision of this is what it means to be an American. This is what we stand for. No city left behind, no state left behind. No American left behind, multi-ethnic, working class, broad coalition, win in a landslide, reunite this country, take our America first agenda further, which most people in this country, if they're being honest, and it wasn't Trump saying it, they would agree with sealing the southern border. I mean, New York City, just look around what's happening in this city. It's chaos. Why? We have a law relating to borders. We just don't follow it. Most people agree with that, but somehow if, if one man says it, people think they disagree with that. And so my job in this is to take those policies to the next level, but also to reunite the country in the process. Because we could speak about these issues as a first generation American, as a guy who's lived the American dream in a way that doesn't induce psychiatric illness to in 30% of the population. Yeah. You know? yeah, I mean, I don't even call them the other side. There is no one other side. This is the mentality for me in this campaign. And I think we all have to start thinking this way. America first is bigger than one man. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than Trump. It's bigger than Reagan. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the people of this country. And I think in the next step of how we move this country forward, I think we're not going to get there without some measure of national unity. That doesn't mean compromising. Right? There's, this, there's a lot of Republicans that say, oh, we have to compromise. No. I think the way we unite this country 
is by actually being uncompromising about the radical ideals that unite us. I mean, the idea that you get to speak your mind freely and you do too and I do too, as long as we give each other the same right in return, that's a crazy idea, right? For most of human history, it was done the other way. That's a loony idea. That's a radical idea, but that's what makes us ourselves in this country. That's what makes America great. That's what makes America itself. Yeah. And so that's how we're going to reunite this country. And I think I can do that for our America First movement in a way that I don't think anybody else can. And that gives me a responsibility to be in the race. Did you get a lot of pressure to, to say bad things about Trump? Yes, I continue to. But you said, like you said, you just kind of be yourself and- Yes, absolutely. Do and, what you actually think. And you know, the more they're coming after him, the more I am committed to actually remembering how strong of a president he was. Right? I, I mean, I'm running for president. There's, you know, I agree with him on 90% of things. There's 10% of things we're going to be different on. It'd be weird if any people agree on 100% of things. There are many judgments that I would have made that are different. What's so, some of the things you disagree with him on? I mean, we could talk about policy. I don't think the wall is anywhere near sufficient. They're building tunnels underneath that wall. They're driving trucks through that tunnel. That's not to say the border wall is a bad policy. It was a good start. But we've got to be able and willing to use our own military to seal our own southern border. You take tactics like the Department of Education. He put a good person on top of it, the U.S. Department of Education, which is a toxic federal agency that's wasting $80 billion of our money telling local schools they have to adopt these racial and gender ideologies as a condition for getting that federal money. It's a broken federal agency. He put a good person, Betsy DeVos, on top and said, hey, reform it. Doesn't work that way. You can't tame the beast. You have to shut it down. And so, but these are, these are, you know, we can go into those differences. But my point is, the more they're going after him, I mean, these prosecutions are nonsense. They're made up fictitious legal theories designed to keep one man from running. The more important it becomes for me as a guy who is running against Trump, second place in some of these national polls, it'd be easier for me to be the president if he were eliminated, but that's not the point. That's not what matters. We got to stand for what's right. And so the more they're going after him, the more committed I am to speaking the truth about how politicized this is, about the fact that it drove people nuts on the debate stage when I said this, but it's just so obviously true that he was the best president of the 21st century. I mean, Bush, Obama, Biden, Trump, it's not even close. <laughs> There's only one of them that kept us out of a war. There's only one of them who's grown the economy while doing it at the same time. And so we could just go on about that, but that's obvious, even though it made people mad that I said it. But then people say, oh, why are you running against him? Because we have to aspire to excellence, right? We can't just be complacent and aspire to normalcy. We're American. We aspire to better. And I think in the next stage of our national leap, we're going to have to reunite this country, bring young people along. I think young people are lost and disaffected from the government for good reason. You have a government that, how old are you guys actually? 29. You're 29? Same age. Same. Okay, I'm, I'm 38, a little bit older than you guys. But certainly I grew up, and I think you guys did too, into a generation where the government has systematically lied to us. Lied to us about weapons of mass destruction. We've always not trusted Iraq. the government in our Oh in yeah, our and age, even yeah. conservative, I mean, Republican, Democrat, the Iraq war, the 2008 bailouts. I was working in a job in New York City here. I mean, that was a farce. The bailouts after the 2008 financial crisis the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that never was, origin of COVID-19 pandemic, what we knew about the vaccines before they were foisted on us as mandates, 
the Hunter Biden laptop story on the eve of an election, the Nashville transgender shooter manifesto that they still have not released, now how our money is being spent in Ukraine. We have a government that has systematically lied and said, we can't trust the people with the truth. And so young people who grew up into that generation, I mean, what a four-year college degree is worth, that you take on that debt somehow that's going to help you live the American dream. Many of my peers still haven't paid off their college debts. So yeah, I, I get it why young people are disaffected, but we got to ultimately change direction and say, this is where we're going. And I think that to take the America first agenda that Trump embraced, which I think was a lot of good policies, if we want to get even more of that enacted, I think we're going to have to unite the spirit, the character of this country. And that's a hard thing to do, but I think that that's Feels going like to take someone impossible. coming from the outside. Feels impossible? Yeah. Why do you say that? We're the most divided we've ever been for sure, right? I, so, so, and it keeps getting worse. I think it's, it's not possible. Ever, it I would like agree. It's not getting it is, better, though. It is, the, it is the messenger. You're right. I think it, the same message could be delivered by you know yourself, yeah. multiple people. And I think as like a young person, too, and just talking to different people, it seems like you're right. Everyone is kind of on the same page. Like I think we see a lot of media and it yeah. looks like we're divided. But yes, everybody that's what that, I was going to say. Everybody I that little, I talk to, yes, it's like, I don't know, everyone that I talk to thinks there's only two genders or like, I never actually meet someone in real life that's like, you know. I mean, maybe once in a while. Yeah, but, but not like they're portraying and it. That's, it's 80% of the country easily. So that's, that's what I see is in the world of media, right, algorithmic, independent media, traditional cable media, print media, it looks like we are badly divided to a breaking point. And the problem is that actually does create further a, divide, a division, right? further yeah. divide in the real world. But right now when I'm traveling a majority of states in this country that I've been to in the last few years for my book tours now into the campaign, talking to from farmers in Iowa to people in the inner city of Manchester or, or Columbus, Ohio, for that matter, where I live, we're not as divided as they'll teach you to believe. If people disagree on the details, that's fine. But on the basic rules of the road, I think we are actually still, dare I say, united on them. But there's this culture of fear. I think if you talk to most people, do you believe that there are two genders? Do you believe that it's important to have access to energy, including fossil fuels? Do you think that reverse racism is racism? Do you think that regardless of the color of your skin, you should still be judged on the content of your character? That parents, all else equal, it's good to have two parents in the house with the focus on education and they should determine their path to children's education, not the federal government. Do you agree that capitalism, all else equal, is a good system to lift people up from poverty? I think they would tell you they agree with these things. Everything I just said is, is quite controversial today to say in the modern media ecosphere. And so here's the thing, you talk to most people, I mean, most of us in this building right now, skyscraper in Manhattan, supposedly blue region of the country. I think most people in this skyscraper building believe in those shared perspectives. I think, I'll go one step further. I think most people here probably believe that their neighbors and their classmates and their colleagues and the parents of their kids' friends also believe these things to be true. But they're not sure about it because they're afraid to talk about it. 
So my bet is once we all, not just me, not just you, once we all start talking openly again, we call the bluff on that division. Which and I think is happening. Epidemic. I think it's starting to happen. It already started. I mean, there's so many examples. That even YouTube. Yep. YouTube used to give us a lot of shit. You couldn't even say the word trans. Now, like when we're putting up podcasts, like we did one with Donald Trump Jr. And it was like damn near like transphobic almost. And they just... I think even companies like that are now like you saw what happened with the Bud Light situation. Like even these companies totally. now are realizing like, damn, like we can't be super woke or we're going totally. to go out of business. So I think that's kind of affecting a lot of people stuff don't too. want this nonsense. Right. Yeah. So I think I'm optimistic about where we are. But it's going to require real leaders to harness and marshal that energy in a positive direction. The, the analogy I used in a speech I gave over the weekend is. It's like we told people in our generation that, hey, you got to satisfy your moral hunger by going to Ben and Jerry's and ordering a cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles on top and make yourself feel better about yourself. But it's like when you have fast food, you're hungry for something, you get the hit. Now we're over the hit. We're hungry for the real thing. And this is, this is the choice I think we face in how we want to approach things in this Republican primary and in the election next year. We could say, hey, the left is serving us race, gender, sexuality, climate, and we're against all of those things for you know, all these reasons. And I've written, I mean, I wrote the book Woke Inc. long before people were, knew what the word woke was. And so I've been doing some of this, I have to admit. But I think that now the tides are changing, right? People see the problem, the cultural threats. Now, our task is a different one where we got to say, what do we actually stand for? What are we running to? Right, so I'll give you an example. If they're giving us race, gender, sexuality, climate, maybe we should be talking more about the individual, the family, the nation, that I'm a citizen of this nation, not some global citizen somewhere, God. Individual, family, nation, God. That's an alternative to race, gender, sexuality, and climate. But, but whatever it is, I think that we have to answer the question. Let's talk about what does it mean to be an American today? And yes, most people our age that question. What does it mean to be an American? You get a blank stare in response. There's a void. We're hungry for a cause. What would you say? It's, I'm Canadian, so. Are you Canadian? Yeah. Well, you're here. Okay. I'm here. I'm you're here. You're American. If you win, I might be calling on you for citizenship. So <laughs> I'm being serious. I appreciate well, yeah. you, you. How long you been here, man? Uh, I got a visa. So I've been coming here for like okay. eight years. But yeah, we have a visa now. So I think, I think <laughs> the good news is our founding fathers did the hard work for us. So we don't have to make it up. We just have to rediscover it. You know, you know how old Thomas Jefferson was when he wrote the Declaration of Independence? No. How old is he? He's 33. Think about that. And people said I was too young to run for president at 37. First, I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll turn 38. Did that in August last month. Check that box off. But, you know, joking aside, I think it takes, like Thomas Jefferson, like Hamilton, like the people who set this country into motion. Boys, this episode is sponsored by Shopify. <laughs> 
Shopify is an all-in-one e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. If you're inspired to start a new business venture this year, you guys gotta try Shopify. Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your in-person or e-commerce business without the struggle. Shopify is the global e-commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. So whether you're offering custom stickers from Shopify's in-person POS system or selling sunglasses on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are in good hands. By now it's clear, you boys know that I love Shopify. We've used Shopify's e-commerce platform from the very beginning to sell full send and happy dad gear hosted on our website. My favorite thing about Shopify is no matter how big you wanna grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. They're truly a global force powering millions of entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. So boys, if you're thinking of starting a business, doing anything, get something going, you can go to shopify.com slash full send and sign up for a $1 per month trial, period. So all lowercase, go to shopify.com slash full send and take your business to the next level today. I think it takes someone, a generation, whose best days are still yet ahead of itself to see a country whose best days can still be ahead of itself. And I don't think we have to be this nation in decline. I really don't. That's what we are right now, but it doesn't have to stay that way. But I think we have to, I think we live in an American revolutionary style moment where we have to revive the answer to that question of what does it mean to be an American? I think it means you get ahead, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions, that you work hard, you put in the effort, that nobody's going to stop you from achieving the maximum of your God-given potential. Hard work, self-commitment, dedication, speaking your mind freely at every step of the way. You don't have to choose between putting food on the dinner table and speaking your mind freely. Between the American dream and the First Amendment, you get to enjoy both of those things at once. These are distinctly American ideals. Most other countries, for most of human history, they said, this is nuts. This is crazy. Crazy talk. And that's part of why when people talk about, well, you have to be a little bit more moderate. You're being a little extreme. No, not. Actually, to the contrary, America is radical. That's what unites us. Not our different shades of melanin. We got three different shades of melanin around here. Great. We got a spectrum of different, you know, color of skin on this, on this set. Who cares? Why does that matter? It means nothing if there's nothing greater that unites us across those differences. So, so that's what this campaign, but hopefully what the next eight years of leading this country will be all about. By the time I leave in 2033, two terms in, drop the mic, pass it to the next guy. Young people will be proud to be citizens of this country again because we will know what it means to be a citizen of this country again. We'll get the bureaucracy out of the way, shut down the bureaucrats who were never elected to run government in the first place. And the people who we elect to run the government today, they're not the ones who run the government. Mm -hmm. That's a joke. Yeah. That's a farce. It's the bureaucrats and the three-letter agencies what 
you know, Trump and others have called the deep state. Great. We see the problem. How do you actually shut it down? You got to get in there and actually be willing to bring mass layoffs to Washington, D.C. So but how, know, how do you do how do you crush the deep state? Because I guess it's called the deep state for a reason. Yep. Like you got to go. They, deep. Like, let's be honest. They got sh- that shit on lock. Right. Like it's yep. a bunch of powerful people. And it's like, do you think it's really possible to make a change if all those powerful people are like, I mean, not to like say it too, but like, I mean, look what they're doing to Trump or like, will they take it a step further? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, presidents have been assassinated. Like, how do you like do that? Yeah. That's something you're ever scared of or like, I mean, I think when you're we, really trying to bridge of change scared. It. Yeah. But here's what I will say is I don't think you can reform it. Yeah. So if you're standing on the side of incremental reform, that doesn't work. But I don't stand for incremental reform. I think we need revolution. I mean, a revival of the ideals of the American Revolution. So when I'm coming in as the next president, we will send home over 75% of the federal employee headcount through mass layoffs by the end of my first term. Now, they told you know Trump, you can't do these things. We'll shut down government agencies that shouldn't exist, shut down the FBI, shut down the IRS, the ATF, the CDC, the Department of Education the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that stops any nuclear energy project from proceeding in this country. Yes, we will get in there and shut them down. Day one, cancel, rescind. Over 50% of federal regulations. Did you say the the FBI too? Yes. So I don't know too much about the FBI, but how do you just shut down the FBI? To to a normal person, that sounds like what the fuck? So I'll tell you what the mechanics look like. There's about 35,000 people who work at the FBI. 20,000 of them are bureaucrats that report into the J. Edgar Hoover building or the bureaucracy offices of the FBI. Still called the J. Edgar Hoover building, by the way. People should read a book about this guy. It's called G-Man. It's it's an incredible book. It shows the history of the corruption of this individual and the agency that he built, not just against one political party. I mean, against Martin Luther King, against, you know- The FBI itself? Absolutely. It was built on corruption? It was absolutely, it was scaled on corruption, yeah. So J. Edgar Hoover, he's like the, the mastermind behind the FBI. He's the guy who would privately record tape cassettes of Martin Luther King, try to blackmail him to commit suicide. They'd be showing up at Berkeley's college campuses, seeing who shows up. Actually, actually, you know where this came up was in that movie um, Oppenheimer recently. Right. right. They were spying on Oppenheimer. They were spying on anybody who had supposed liberal sympathies. So, by the way, this is, this is against liberals back then. Today, it's doing the same thing against conservatives. Your mom, who is a concerned parent who shows up at a school board meeting, they'll label you a domestic terrorist and investigate you. So it's corrupt to its core. For what purpose? Power, dominion, control, and punishment. They don't trust the people who are elected to run the government. J. Edgar Hoover was like, presidents, these guys are like cute little puppets that come along every four years. We have a country to preserve. I mean, he's coming almost not because he wants to ruin the country, but because he thinks saving the country requires a technocrat, not a passing politician, which rejects the American view. So he thinks he's actually doing good. And just like the people at the FBI today do, today do too. So anyway, I was going to say is 35,000, 20,000 of them are these bureaucrats that report into, and think about it today. You go to Washington, D.C., the headquarters literally still says at the top, they're proud of it, the J. Edgar Hoover building of the FBI. Those people are all going home, finding honest work in the private sector. Done. 15,000 that are left, these are agents on the front lines. I mean, they're looking at child trafficking rings, drug trafficking rings, looking at financial enforcement crimes. Move them. Put some of them in the U.S. Marshals, which has been much more effective at taking on child sex trafficking cases. 
put them at the DEA to take on the fentanyl epidemic and otherwise put them at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network to look at complex white collar crime, where A, they have more specialization, they're going to be better at their jobs. But B, those agencies haven't been corrupted in the same way that the FBI has. So you'll have other Republicans that, you know, will puff their chest and, you know, after practicing, you know, 10 times in front of the mirror and in front of their political consultants will say, we will fire Christopher Wray, who's the current head of the FBI. But all right, you get, forget James Comey, you got Christopher Wray. Fire Christopher Wray, you get the next James Comey. It's not a problem of individual action. The machine, the apparatus itself, <laughs> that is the monster. And so we've got to open our eyes and see that. So can we incrementally reform that? No. And do you even go after individuals? I think actually that's a mistake to think that that's going to solve the problem. And it's also where you get the most retaliation. Instead, we just come in and say, we're shutting the whole thing down. And then there's a legal reason why that's also better because this is, what they, this is why they told Trump, you can't fire these individual employees is there are these things called civil service protections which are these federal rules. I mean, it's kind of junk if you think about it, but that's that say, if you're a federal employee, one of the perks of being on the job is you can't be fired without cause, which means you like broke the law or something like that. Well, you got to read the law though. And this is where they duped Trump. Those civil service protections only apply to individual firings. They don't apply to mass layoffs, what in the law they call large reductions in force. Large reductions in force are absolutely what I am bringing to the DC bureaucracy. So, so I think that it requires, I think, a unique combination of, yes, somebody who comes in from the outside. I've been a CEO. I get it. Somebody works for you and you can't fire them. That means they don't work for you. <laughs> It means you work for them because you're responsible for what they do without having any authority to change it. And other politicians, they don't get this. Trump and I, I think, are unique in understanding this amongst you know, Republicans at the top level of, of presidential politics right now. But it has to be an, also an outsider Definitely. who actually understands the law and the Constitution personally so you're not duped by the advisors. And I think that's what happened last time around. You said something earlier about the Department of Education. So- did you say that they're only providing like funding to certain schools that follow like the curriculum that they, that's, that's Well, they get on? all the schools to line up because the schools need the funding. Right. So the way it works is you've probably heard in the last few years, you've had parents showing up at school board meetings, pushing back against uh -huh. some of these toxic curricular items like, you know, radical gender ideology or racial indoctrination in the schools. Yeah. The dirty little secret is it's not just coming from the local school boards. It's coming because they're responding to the incentives from the federal government. And it's a meaningful part of the budget. It could be 10, 12, 15% yeah, of the budget of that says you don't get that money unless you're meeting some of these toxic criteria. Really? Yeah. That's a fact. That's a fact. And so wow. that's the lurking, dirty little secret behind how the Department of Education. So, like the gender study stuff, like that's one of the things that they're kind of suggesting Softly, that they teach. Absolutely. And, so, and, and the problem is who's in power. So, They'll talk about racial equity programs or programs to educate students on the importance of the diversity, equity, inclusion on these particular axes. And so the school could be at risk of not of, of being denied federal funding, especially if you have an administration in power that interprets those things so broadly. And so that creates the conditions for local schools. So you can't even blame the schools at that point in a certain yeah, way. Like in a certain way, they right? might be in tough positions. Because there's a like deeper, invisible hand at work. 
And then you think, oh, I'm going to blame the people in Congress, those dirty politicians, and, and they're dirty, but that's not the point in their own way, in Congress or the Senate. No, no, no. You're missing the point. They're not even the guys who make the laws, really. It's the people who we never elected who are in that bureaucracy. They're the ones that are actually wielding the actual keys to power. So you think that's like a quick fix to this whole, I mean, the gender thing is like the biggest topic on the internet. Like I mean, it's almost, nuts. Like, it's nuts. I mean, just think about the, so, so there's, the first short answer is there's no quick fix, but there are- That sounds like a pretty damn good one But to it's start, pretty though. good, but it's a pretty good starting point. Cause that's, you go yeah. to the head of the snake. That's my philosophy. Kill the head of the snake. Yeah. The, the body will follow. And you just think about how poisonous some of these ideologies are, how much they don't even make sense. Let's just start with that. The same movement, you know, LGBTQIA, there's so many letters, they just put a little plus at the plus, end. Plus, minus, right, yeah. right. Square root. Yeah, square root. <laughs> Exclamation mark, yeah. ampersand, ampersand, dollar sign, dollar sign, <laughs> hashtag. Yeah. So plus, okay. The same movement, I just want you to track with me for a second here because we're not going to be angry about it. Sometimes when you're angry about it, you it stops you from seeing clearly. Just be curious. Yeah. Just be curious, interested, what's going on here. The same- Don't, don't get angry. He doesn't seem pretty angry to yeah. me. <laughs> he seemed pretty chill. <laughs> yeah, chill now. What do I call you again? Steiny. Steiny? Yeah. Steiny's good, okay, good. Yeah. So anyway, people, people mess, people call me all kinds of things, so. Oh no, you're good, me too. <laughs> so LGBTQIA+, okay. <laughs> the same movement that says the sex of the person you're attracted to is hardwired on the day you're born. By the way, that was a core claim of the gay rights movement because in order to be a civil right, it had to be an inborn characteristic. What, so you said like they're saying you're born gay? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I mean, like I was born this way was right. the mantra of the gay rights movement. Uh -huh. and, and there was a reason for it, the legal reason for why it had to be that way is the civil rights, these protected classes, they are generally thought to apply to immutable characteristics, what they call inborn native characteristics you're born with, like your race, your gender. They wanted to get sexual orientation to count as one of those things. And so they said the sexual orientation, the sex of the person you're attracted to is hardwired on the day you're born. That was the claim of the gay rights movement. And I'm not saying, I'm not questioning or having a problem with this, but I'm just pointing out a contradiction here. That same movement is now the one that says, your own biological sex is totally fluid over the course of your life. Mm. Those two things can't make sense right. at the same time. Now we'll go one layer deeper because it's actually doubly ironic. There is no gay gene, right? There's, no, there's, there's a gene for a lot of things in your genetics. There's no gene for gayness. Doesn't exist. So what, that would mean it's a choice? No, I'm not saying it's a choice. I'm just pointing out contradictions. But there are two sex chromosomes, two X's, you're a woman, and X and a Y, you're a man. And so just think about the level of the, not only contradiction, but lunacy here. There's no gay gene, but the sex of the person you're attracted to is hardwired on the day you're born. But there are two sex chromosomes that are definitive, not just genes, giant chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And yet your biological sex is the one that's completely fluid over the course of your life. That makes it, no sense. It, it, it I don't makes, get why they group gay, uh, like gay people and trans people. Oh, they have nothing to do with each other. It's just like, I mean, I, I, mean. I know many of my gay friends are 
are appalled by the fact that they're put in a category with somebody who suffers from yeah. likely mental health illness. Like but, our, our assistant's gay, and I say the, the whole time, like, he's the most transphobic one in our crew. Like, he's actually got I mean, a the G has nothing to do with the and T. he's gay as hell, so it's just like, the I don't G even know why. They, I don't to, think they like each other. Well, the G has nothing to do with the T. Also, most most people in the G category don't like people in the L category and vice versa. Even gay and lesbian. Yeah. Gay men and lesbian women don't have much to do with each other. They don't particularly often yeah, like Yeah, I don't get other. why they group them. But somehow we've grouped everyone together. It's this alphabet soup. And then and the pluses the same, are in there. And, and they've done the now, same thing like, with, with persons of color. And you notice that one, too. Think about 160 different ethnic categories, speaking different languages from different categories. And then we're going to lump them all together, say you are in this category we're going to call of color, as though you're all the same thing, versus this other category we call white. So these are these are inherently created to divide, divide and conquer. It's the oldest trick in the playbook. But, but you think about the nonsensical part of that, about the gender paradox I gave you. Now let's try a different paradox on a different cult in this country. And these are cults. As I'll, as I'll tell you in a second why. The climate cult. Did the same cult that says you can't emit carbon or carbon dioxide here in the United States to Chevron or Exxon or whatever is perfectly fine turning a blind eye as those same carbon emissions, the same projects, like literally Chevron has sold projects to PetroChina, shift to places like China they are perfectly fine turning a blind eye to that. That doesn't make sense. Now I'll go one layer deeper on this one. The same cult that says we don't want any more carbon emissions in the United States is also the same cult that is against nuclear energy, which is the greatest form of carbon-free energy production known to mankind. Again, these things, they just don't, I mean, you could debate one or the other of them. But you can't believe both of those things at the same time. Why are they against nuclear? Well, that's a good question to ask. They don't have a good explanation. They'll say it's because of safety. It's just like a money reason? Up. or No, it's, it, it, I'll tell you what's going on. So it's about global equity. Nuclear energy might be too good at solving the supposed energy crisis. Whereas what the whole climate agenda is actually about. So it's the carbon companies that are kind of pushing back. Well, I mean, there, there's the crony, there's the crony capitalist piece of this, which is, you know, all the people that want their subsidies for clean energy are lobbying for it. But there's something deeper going on internationally, which is this is about letting the rest of the world, China in particular, catch up to the United States. So that's why they're fine with stopping carbon emissions in the United States if they shift them to China, because that's part of the rest of the world catching up. Now, nuclear energy throws a wrench into this because that still allows the U.S. to continue to grow even without emitting carbon. And so they're against that because nuclear energy, not because it's not good enough, but because it might be too good. So does that mean that like China, China and foreign governments are just like lobbying against like our Yeah, and they do it with institutions like the U.N. and the WHO, the transnational deep state. So you got the three-letter agencies in the U.S., right? The... FBI, to the DOE, to the FTC, to the SEC, to the FDA. We got three-letter versions of that on the international stage too. WHO or UN or whatever. My general view is if it's an acronym, it's designed to bore you for a reason. That's where you got to pay attention. So it's the transnational deep state that is foisting an agenda of global equity through the verbiage of climate change. That's what's going on. This will drive people nuts that I'm saying this, not because it is false, 
So if I'm saying stuff that's false, they don't care. I mean, I don't say things. I mean, that's, I stick to the truth, but anybody says things that are false, they don't care. They come for you when you say the things that are true because the truth is the threat. That's what's going on in the country right now. So then the deeper question is why the heck are we falling for it? The climate change one is, is tough. I think to convince the average person, I will say, because I think even the way I was growing up was like, you were always taught in school. I remember like yeah. global warming, global warming, global warming, that Al Gore in, what was it called? Yeah, Inconvenient, Inconvenient Truth. Truth. That came out. We like watched it in school. Yeah. But then I looked more into like, it was called global warming back then, right? That was. Now, now, it's, just, it. now it's just climate because, change. Because, yeah. uh, God forbid the temperatures go down, their theories then out the window, right? Yeah. By the way, fun fact for you guys, you might know this. Mid-1970s, there was a movement in this country against the use of fossil fuels. And they said, I kid you not, your people watching this can look this up on the internet for old Cover magazines from the 1970s, one from Newsweek and one from Time Magazine. Cover. Back when magazines were still mailed to houses, you could see the cover. Photographs of them still exist. If we don't stop using fossil fuels, we face an existential risk of climate change of a global ice age. Damn. Yeah. This is in the 1970s, what they said. We're going to have an ice age if we don't stop burning fossil fuels. Now, like 30 years later, Al Gore comes along and says, no, 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 it's global warming. It's the other thing. Well, here's the reality. Are, are, are in recent years, global surface temperatures going up by a little bit? They are. But that doesn't but necessarily that, mean it's man-caused. Man it doesn't right? even mean yeah. it's existential risk for humanity. Yeah. The, the first question people have stopped, stopped to ask is, are we sure this is, on balance, a bad thing? That's the actual question to ask is- And also, are we causing it? Well, so, so A, are we causing it? B- even if we stopped behaving in that way, are we sure we would reverse it? But then D, most importantly, are we sure we even want to reverse it? Because more people have died of ice ages than have died from warming ever in human history. Today, as we speak right now, eight times as many people die of cold temperatures as warm ones. The right answer to all temperature-related deaths is more access to energy, including fossil fuels. Here's a fun one for you. Ice age would be so fucked. What's that? I said, oh my oh God. Oh my God. Be, so I had, I mean, I think somebody could make, somebody wants to make a, a pretty good movie right now. It'd be like a futuristic dystopian movie where 200 years from now, we're on the cusp of a looming ice age because we weren't using carbon dioxide. We stopped all carbon emissions and all of humanity is just raging in to burn as much coal as they possibly can to power our energy grids but also to be able to put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to stave off that looming ice age. It'll be a fictitious premise. It would call a bluff and make Hollywood go nuts. But on the seriousness of this, putting the joking to one side, I'm going to share a hard fact with you. This is hard fact. I, actually, I'd be curious for your, for your guess on this, mm -hmm. if you don't already know it. If you know it, you know it. It's almost more interesting to know based on what you've consumed and what you hear in the public, what do you think the answer is? For every 100 people who died of a climate-related disaster in the year 1920, hurricane, tornado, heat wave, drought, for every 100 people who died back then of a climate-related disaster, how many people die today of a climate-related disaster? Wait, you're saying 100? Like, like back then, a hundred people were dying yeah. of climate-related disasters in a given year. Oh, okay, okay. Do you think now. that the, for every for every hundred people, do you think that it, that number is more or less now? 
The way you're phrasing it, probably less. It's less, yeah. yeah. But if you buy up the popular narrative, everyone would, everyone and their brother would think yeah, more. that more people are dying of climate-related disasters now. Not only are fewer people dying, 98% fewer people are dying. So for every 100 people that died then, two die today of a climate-related disaster. Why? Now, there are climate-related disasters today as there were then. Better healthcare and stuff too. Exactly. Better. Or better, all powered by oil, natural gas, coal, the very things that we're saying not to use. Powered by better buildings, air conditioning, heating. Actually, there was an article over the weekend. It was, it was shocking. There was, I mean, sad. People in Europe are dying of a hot summer. But you want to know why people are dying of hot summers in Europe? Because they have banned the use of air conditioning. Air conditioning is not widely available in Europe over the summers. Stunning. And yet people, come back to that first point I made. There's a lot of people dying in the summer in Europe right now? Yeah, hundreds. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal. So people dying of climate change in the face of scant air conditioning. So I tweeted that. I just highlighted the scant air conditioning part. I said, you're missing the punchline. So the right answer, even if there is climate change in whatever direction, by the way, climate change has existed as long as the earth has existed by definition. But the right answer for human beings isn't to try to have play God and believe we can change the climate. It's to adapt to any changing circumstance, climate related or not, by doing what we as human beings do. We innovate, we evolve, we build things for ourselves that protect us against the risks that we face, whatever they are. I think we face a much greater risk of nuclear war right now and countless people dying of nuclear war than we do of climate change. And I bring that up today because this morning or last night, Biden was saying climate is the single greatest risk to humanity, not nuclear war. I disagree. You got a president who's sleepwalking us into a nuclear war right now. How can they say climate change is the biggest threat to our society? That's just a load of bullshit, honestly. Because they will just make anything up to exercise power, dominion, control, and punishment. And they're being played like a Chinese mandolin by the CCP, who's laughing at every step of the way, because they're not adopting any of these climate constraints. See, see, here's how this game works. And I've, They're just you know, pushing all this bullshit on us, and then they're just doing all the shit that's going to make them powerful. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And they're laughing. There, there's, a, uh, there's a Chinese Pretty word. smart, man. I mean, the, those, these guys, these guys those are smart. These guys are smart. These right guys now. are smart. You know, they're laughing at us. Yeah. They're literally laughing at us. There, there's a word in, in Mandarin called a bite soul. It literally refers to woke, progressive white people in the West. And they use it to laugh at it because they say your insecurities, they're using it against you and they're laughing at you in the process. There's like a word in Chinese for it. And so the way it works in China is if you say you want to apply an emissions cap, like let's say you're BlackRock. You have you heard of BlackRock? Or do you know? Okay. So they're, they're, that's, a, that's the world's largest asset manager down the street here in New York City in Midtown. They manage... $10 trillion, okay? And then them and the next two biggest firms, State Street and Vanguard, together manage more money than the entire US GDP. Probably including even money of people in this room. Retirement accounts and otherwise, and investment accounts. And they tell these companies using your money to drill for less oil or to frack for less natural gas in the name of fighting climate change. But when they go to China... And they're investing in PetroChina and other companies. They don't apply those same constraints over there. Why? Because if you go to China and say, I want to apply an emissions cap to oil companies here, they'll say, get the heck out and shut the door on your way out. 
But if you tell them that I am applying an emissions cap to companies in the United States, they will roll out the red carpet. Right? You show up in China and you say, I'm going to criticize you for putting a million religious minorities in concentration camps and subject them to forced sterilization, communist indoctrination, and worse. So they're doing a million Uyghurs in Shenzhen in China right now. If you say a peep about that over there, they'll shut the door and say, get the heck out. But if you criticize the United States for systemic racism or slavery 250 years ago, they will roll out the red carpet. So China is playing us like a mandolin. That's what they're doing. Xi Jinping so turns Tim Cook and Larry Fink and American CEOs into his circus monkeys. He will say jump, they will say how high, because for them, they build the great Chinese wall to say you can't enter the Chinese market without playing this game. So that's a big part of what the climate agenda is about. They're doing the same thing via the UN and other international institutions. Are they doing like, like that's like a, China's like almost invented like a new form of like warfare, what they're doing to our society, right? Like it's like- Of course it is. It's cultural it's and economic warfare. smart on like a scary level. Well, like I would the call cultural doing, warfare. I would call what we're doing crazy dumb to fall for it at yeah. every step of the way. And I think it takes, the problem with the Republican party is you've got a bunch of partisan hacks who read from the binders served up to them by their super PACs, who are in turn funded by the very people who have economic interests tied to China that stop them from serving up the right talking points and a bunch of vessels that are just reading what's served up to them on a teleprompter like a bunch of robots under, have undergone a lobotomy. That's what most of political classes in the United States and what we actually need are people who understand the depth of what's going on, are uncaptured, and able to speak to it. And, and I understand now going through this why many of those capable people don't go into politics. It's brutal. I mean, it's dishonest. It's dirty. They make it that way for a reason. It's designed to keep outsiders out. But if we're just going to sit aside and watch from the sidelines, we're not going to have a country left in 20 years. How do you, I don't think we're working with a lot of time here. Yeah. How do you see this whole, like, what's going on in the world right now abroad, like the Ukraine-Russia thing? And then I saw North Korea now. Did they, yeah. meet, they meet in potentially supplying them with weapons? Yeah, so I think like we are sleepwalking our way potentially into World War III. And I think it's dangerous. And as U.S. president, I will put an end to it. I will keep us out of World War III. How? We got to first end the Ukraine war on, with a peace deal that allows Ukraine to come out with its sovereignty intact. But we will freeze the current lines of control. That means Russia gets certain parts of the Donbass region. Means that NATO will never admit Ukraine to NATO. Every deal, everybody's got to get something out of it. That's what Russia gets out of it. But we get something more. Russia has to exit its military alliance with China. The Russia-China military alliance, it is the single greatest threat that we face in the United States today. But do they, they don't have enough official alliance do they like it's more like they're buddy buddy though right they have an official like they don't have like a nato no, right no they, they have an official alliance oh really it's a 2001 treaty it's called the treaty of good neighborliness and cooperation they upped that into what was called then the no limits strategic partnership of oh, okay. 2022 and, and i don't blame you for not knowing this because most people don't because the media doesn't report it they don't talk about this the russia china formal alliance they do joint military exercises together off the coast of alaska like their militaries cooperate to train together. Right off the coast? Right off the coast of Alaska. In fact, they did, they, did, they did one, what, a few weeks ago. And you don't hear about this because it doesn't fit the narrative of standing with the 
and China has, cargo pans. China's putting stuff in Cuba too, right? China's, China's a spy base in Cuba. China put a spy balloon flying over half our country. And the reason we don't say anything about it is because we're dependent on China for our modern way of life, from the shoes on our feet to the phones in our pockets. Fuck. They require China. So you can't, and, and you know, the USSR in the last century, we never depended on them for our modern way of life. In the new Cold War, we're dependent on the enemy. Think about that. Even many of the military contractors, this is nuts, actually, what I'm about to tell you, but it's true. Our military contractors that are making our own military equipment, their supply chains start in China. Fuck. Think about that. China is actually putting and training Mexican drug cartels and selling fentanyl to them that they're putting into other drugs. And I met parents of two kids, sad story of a 17-year-old. He died. He got Percocet on Snapchat. It was laced with fentanyl. He didn't know it had fentanyl in it. He died on the You're spot. You're saying China is selling fentanyl to the Mexican drug cartels yes. that they're China making. China is sending the, the synthetic ingredients required to make fentanyl. There's four key ingredients. It's coming from Wuhan, China. They're selling it to Mexican drug cartels at cheap prices. So that makes the profit margins for the drug cartels go up. To then pump that across our southern border because they want to undermine the United States. So now think about this. That, that's, whoa. It's that's, nuts. That's fucking wild. It's a fact. In fact, there's a book coming out next year. So this, this one I can't confirm, but there's a book supposedly coming out in early next year where there are hundreds of Chinese chemists south of our own border working with the Mexican drug cartels, helping them synthesize that. So that part I can't confirm, but supposedly that's in a book coming out, a well-reported book supposedly we're going to see coming out early next year. But the fact of the synthetic materials to make the fentanyl being shipped to the Mexican drug cartels at cheap prices, that's fact. Bro, we're at war with China right now. They're at war with us. The reality is we don't have the spine to stand up because we're addicted to China, right? They're, they're functionally at an opium war with the United States. That's the way I would say it. Whoa. And we're not doing anything about it. So the thing we're going to have to do is wake up to the fact that we can't depend on our enemy. We can't even hit them back like that because they're not life. like they're not partying like us and stuff. Like they don't got customers like Steiny and stuff like the cartels. Yeah. They're not. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. What do we even do about that? Totally. So, so this is this is AC's pick. I don't know. If, I don't know if you want to respond to that. To that. No, attack. he's pretty accurate with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so the truth is, I think the Chinese chemists see Steiny and they're like, "Let's fucking one. go." No, I'm not getting out from Snapchat though. But yeah. Don't Snapchat. I mean, it's, it is kind of sad though. People yeah. are using Snapchat to buy drugs. Kids that they don't even know that they're buying that actually contain fentanyl in them. So my view is get Russia out of China's arms. Disband the Russia-China Do you think alliance. they're going to agree to that, though? Well, if we do a deal that ends the Ukraine war, in every deal, everybody's got to get something out of the deal. Why would Russia and China ever end their alliance, though? Well, I would reopen economic relations with Russia. So if Russia has an economic relationship with the West and the United States, then they don't need to be as dependent on China. And Putin doesn't like being Xi Jinping's little brother. You can look at the cracks. There yeah, cracks he's always in the middle and shit. I saw it Yeah, too. He did, Putin didn't like that. Yeah. So, so I think that there are cracks in that armor. I don't trust Putin, by the way, but I trust him to follow his self-interest. So if we reopen economic relations with Russia, we end the Ukraine war on terms that freeze the current lines of control. We make a hard commitment that NATO will not admit Ukraine to NATO. Those are good enough reasons for Putin to say, okay, I'm going to now exit my military alliance with China. This is how you now weaken China because China's bet is that the U.S. won't want to go to war with two different allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. 
Russia and China. But if Russia is no longer in China's camp, then China is going to have to think twice before going after Taiwan. So you don't hear anybody in the foreign policy establishment talking this way because it's all about support Ukraine without asking, how does that actually advance our national interest? My answer is it doesn't. I would use the end of the, new, end of the Ukraine war as a way to accomplish other objectives for the U.S. I would also require Putin to get his military presence out of the Western Hemisphere. Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, they've got military presence there. Get it out. And there are other things I would say. There's the part of Russia that borders Poland. It's called Kaliningrad. Get the nuclear weapons out of there too. So we would do a deal that secures peace, not because I trust Putin, because I don't, but we can trust him to follow his self-interest that then weakens China, that deters China from going after Taiwan, that onshores a lot of production to the United States, strengthens our relationships with Japan and South Korea and India. That's how we actually stay out of World War III while actually advancing American interests. And it is stunning that it takes an actual outsider to speak sense to, in this case, a bipartisan establishment. The Republican Party mostly is no different than Joe Biden on this one, on the Ukraine war or otherwise. It's going to take an outsider to get that job done, but an outsider who doesn't drive 30% of this country psychiatrically ill, but can actually lay out the reasons to say, this is how we're going to do it. Why are we so, like interested and supportive of Ukraine? Like, is it yeah, is it's there, sort like, of weird? Where it's, does, like I always say, follow the money? Like, how does that Some of it's follow work? the money. I mean, you look at even other, I'll leave the homework to you guys. Look at other Republican presidential candidates, some of whom have made money as military contractors right. in their time out of government. Well, if you're a military contractor, you're going to support and be more in favor of war. So that's so an element is it, of it. is it just the military industrial complex, like wanting to make money like they always that, do? That, that, that's a, I believe that's a big part of it. I think a big part of it's also psychological. So we're not in the same strong position. But, but that, what I mean by that is like that, that war is so politicized too. Like they have the Ukraine flags at like NFL games. And like, you know, there's something bigger going on behind Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. Right? I mean, we, you, have, you have more people pledging allegiance to transgender flags and Ukraine flags than you do have American flags in many parts of this country. And it is sad. But part of it's the money. Part of it is a psychological insecurity, okay? Where people feel like we're still the strong nation we once were if we're projecting strength vis-a-vis -vis Russia. When in fact, we gotta wake up to the fact that the USSR doesn't exist anymore and communist China is actually the real threat we face. And we're weaker vis-a-vis -vis China because we're using resources in this war, but more importantly, we're also driving Russia further into China's arms. And it just requires somebody with fresh eyes to see the obvious that's staring us in the face. And then yes, I think a lot of the special interests and the monetary interests of politicians who make a nice little career for themselves being military contractors after they leave office, and that exists in the Republican Party. It exists amongst people running for US president right now, which is pathetic. But that is the reality of how the broken system works. And I think it's gonna take an uncaptured outsider so I'm in this race to get in there and fix it. What world leader would you be like most excited to meet? Putin, Xi, or, or Kim Jong-un? Excited? I'm not excited to meet any of them. But I can tell though, I'm but you're like, you're like a cool guy. Like you're a you normal who, guy. Like, don't I, lie. If you, you had a meeting with Kim Jong-un, you'd be like, you'd look in the mirror and be like, yo, it's fucking game time. Like I'm going to negotiate with Kim Jong-un you know, today. I think, I'd any, I think I'd have a pretty easy I'm time excited. with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, I, I think it'd be- Not I saying they're good people, you know but you'd go in there for ready for like, yo, I got you know, You know who I'm actually, I was watching- 
I'd be pretty interested in meeting. It has nothing to do with, with politics or geopolitics. Last night at the U.S. Open, I watched Daniel Medvedev. He's from Russia. That's the Russian I'd be interested in meeting. That guy's got a spine and mental fortitude of steel. Like, that fascinates me. Most of these world leaders, I mean, Xi Jinping is a fascinating person, actually. They're just so mysterious, right? Yeah, like, I think they're made to be mysterious, though. And I think, I think that in reality, they're just people who are calculating what's in their self-interest. It's not that different. Xi Jinping, I think, has some weirder psychological stuff going on that I think could make him a more interesting person to meet. You know, his dad. How so? Well, I mean, it's interesting if you study the history. Much about him. Yeah, I mean, most people don't. Um, so his dad was one of the victims of the cultural revolution that Mao led, where he turned on many senior Communist Party officials by getting young people to turn on them. I think his dad was tortured. I think Xi Jinping himself was embarrassed with like a, he had to wear like a tin cone or something like that on his head when he was a kid. You know, when when the uprising of the people in the Cultural Revolution were taking on the old corrupt communist establishment, you know, his dad went through a lot of weird things. But you look at Xi Jinping now, he fashions himself now, and that was because of Mao Zedong, but he fashions himself as a sort of modern Mao figure. He even literally sometimes wears like the kinds of suits, designer suits that Mao Zedong wore. It's kind of weird, actually, like some deep daddy issues there going on. But so Damn, I, I that's th a heavy chirp. I think that would be interesting. And I, and I think you got to understand the people you're sitting across the table from. And so, you know, I, I think Xi Jinping's a fascinating person, but I'm, but I'm not going to be his therapist or his psychologist. I think we're just going to get to the bottom of what's right for the United States. You don't mess with our national interests. We're going to be very clear about what our red lines are. You got to have credible red lines. You got to hold tight to them. And you got to be credible about what's not in your national interest. And I think that this is how we're going to stay out of World War III while advancing American interests by being tough, but by also being clear about here are our red lines. Here's what's actually in our interest. I'll be honest with the rest of the world, with every other country, just as I am with, with people in this country, that my job as the U.S. president is to look after the interests of American citizens, period. That's it. And I'll tell people at home that, and we're going to be true to that. But we tell people abroad that, that's credible. That makes sense. As opposed to saying we're going to you know, defend democracy, sort of, kind of, selectively when we feel like it. That's vague. And when you have vague red lines and vague principles that nobody can buy into, that's how you accidentally hit the tripwire and walk yourself into a war because there's misunderstandings with in, incomplete and unclear red lines on both sides. That's the kind of commander-in-chief I'll be. The only war I'm going to wage in my eight years as president is the war on our deep state here at home. Another war you're in right now. I saw Eminem went after oh, you yeah. a little bit. Talk, talk us through that. What happened with that? You know, I mean, it's funny. I was at the, I, I, so, I, so I actually love, I've big, been a big fan of Eminem 1.0. Eminem 1.0. Eminem 2.0 is not the Eminem 1.0. He's, he's part of the new establishment. So I was at the Iowa State Fair, whatever. So there was somebody who was doing an interview like this with the governor of Iowa. She asked every candidate the same thing. Oh, what's your favorite walkout song? I said, lose yourself. So that was fine. So at the end of the it's interview- a banger. What's that? Obviously a banger. It's a good song. Yeah. Yeah. So- I think some guy was listening in the back. So this is like 30 minutes later when I'm getting off stage as I'm walking off, they actually thought it would be fun. They just, they started playing it. So I was like, oh, great. But I still had the mic in my hand from the, from the fireside chat. So I said, let's just do this. And so I rapped to Lose Yourself, which was fun. And we were having fun with it. But I think that for some reason rankled Eminem's handlers. And so they sent a letter saying that, no, you don't want to do that. The only people I think they've let do it are like the Obama campaign to use their music. 
it's interesting how that works. But the thing that was so they funny actually about, sent you like a what a season assist or something. Yeah. The funny thing is we weren't even planning to do this what is, just like warning like yo don't wrap yeah, lose yourself like again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's very threatening. So the funny thing is we didn't even play. It wasn't even our music at our event. This is somebody else's event that we show up at where the Iowa governor's interviewing me and they play it. But the world is weirdly broken for a reason right now. We're running for a reason to fix this stuff. But the thing that's funny about that, remember him in M1.0? He was the guy who was standing up to the system. He was, was it yeah. the, the FCC won't let me be me. That was one of the things he said in one of his songs, right? And so now he's like the new FCC, <laughs> right? The Federal Communications Commission. And it's funny how things change, right? The guy who said, I don't give an F who you think you are. You're not going to stop me from standing up to the system is now the guy that bends the knee, literally bends the knee to the BLM movement and recites chapter and verse what the new woke orthodoxy is. So I still love the original guy. It's just, it happens not to be the same person who's around now, but that's beside the point. Maybe he'll come back. People also go through different phases of their life. Right, so I have hope for people that even people who are trapped in their current echo chamber, that they may still shed some of that fear and become real. And so maybe that'll happen for him too. I wish him well, but it's it's an example of what's going on in our broader culture right now. Do you ever think people like that, like influential people, like do you ever think that sometimes they get pressured by these like big interests to like act that way too? Yes. Like, do you think like, let's yes. say theoretically Eminem, Eminem could yes. be like, yo, I don't really want to do this, but when they keep speaking out, like I feel Absolutely. like- Absolutely. So know, there, was, there was, I mean, I don't know if this was true or not, but I I, I saw this um, on social media, whatever, a few days ago. It was like, there was like, I'm, I'm a big tennis fan. There was a, one of the top men's tennis players was apparently like committed the high crime of following me and Candace Owens or something like that on Twitter. And then apparently his handlers, like his agents were just like, no, 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 that's a risk. And then, and then, you know, immediately took the risk of unfollowing it. So, so I can't confirm that's true, but that was what has been written. And so I have, a, you know, I have no reason to think it's false, but yes, it's the handler. That's actually the one, the managerial class. Yeah. And so in the federal government, it's like the equivalent of the deep state. You have deep corporate. You got the deep state in government, you got deep corporate in the private sector. It's the handlers, the middle management. So you got everyday citizens, good people who just want the truth. You've got rare breeds of creative people. Maybe they're athletes, maybe they're rappers, maybe they're original political thought leaders, whatever they are. But it's the intermediary middle management, the middlemen that are sucking the lifeblood out of our country. And when I say drain the swamp, the swamp just doesn't exist in government. It exists big time in government. But we need to drain the swamp out of our culture. And that's what I'm doing, private sector, public sector alike. I've done it as an entrepreneur in the private sector, but now we're now we're doing it in the private sector. That's crazy that he did so, that. I don't want to say my handlers are now pulling me out because of our schedule. Yeah, but. I know. <laughs> no, no, you're good. <laughs> They're good people, though. We've no, been no, good no. people. I want to ask, so, yeah, we got five minutes left. But um, yeah. so, the race, how do you, you've been like pro-Trump and stuff, obviously supporting him. Yeah. Is there going to come a time when you eventually, if you're going to beat him, you kind of got to go at him a little bit? How do you see that? playing out i'm not like, going at him i mean like there's i'm not running against him i'm just very clear about this right I, I think that he was an excellent president i think these political prosecutions and persecutions are a disaster and i'm not going to waver on that okay, unless the facts are dramatically different and i don't think they're going to be these are bad 
for the United States of America. But we have to take our America first agenda to the next level. I can unite this country in a way that Trump cannot. And I can only do that if I'm the president. I'm also clear that I want him to be my most important advisor and mentor during my first year in office. This isn't about ego. This is about how we save a country. I want to know where the bodies are buried, picking up where he left off to take this further. But I'm 38 years old. I've got fresh legs, right? I'm not yet jaded approach. and cynical. And I think that I just think the truth is it's bigger than me. It's bigger than Trump. America first does not belong to him. It does not belong to me. It belongs to the people. So how do we actually move this country forward? How do you forward? just get it done? I can unite this country in a way that I don't think he can. He did what he needed to do. Now it's the moment to take this to the next level, unite the country. I will ask for his help in doing it. He's a patriot and I believe he will give it to me because he cares about this country too. I believe deeply that he does. And we respect each other. We're both outsiders. That's what it's going to take. But I need to be the president to do it. And I think having fresh legs and not yet being jaded and cynical and having eight years of taking on the arrows that these people have shot at you from front and back. It's not his fault, but it's just a fact. Not having driven 30% of this country psychiatrically ill. You could say that's their fault. So be it. But it, we are where we are. That's what it's going to take to move this country forward. So now, no, I'm not going to be waiting for the moment for then now we're just going to bash him. Yeah. You don't, win, you, don't, you don't win a race by bashing anybody. You do it by... At least my way of doing it is this is what we stand what for. What I meant by that is he has such a strong gridlock on like the Republican fan base right now or the base. Yeah, right? I mean, there's there's like a, he's so ahead. How do you how do you plan to like close that gap and beat it, Trump for the Republican? Here's my plan. Me? Speak the truth. By the end of this, I, I think that my job is to make sure every person in this country knows who I am and what I stand for. That's a hard thing to do because I love settings like this because it's not through some distorted media filter. But with the modern, especially mainstream media, that's a difficult thing to do. But that's my job to do that. But if everybody in this country knows who I am and what I stand for and they want to go for somebody else, I'm comfortable with that. I'm cool with that. That's the system working as it should. In some ways, it would be a relief. I don't relish having the job as the next president. I'm sure Air Force One is cool, but it's not that much of an upgrade for me relative to what I'm doing right now. So for other people, it might be a bigger perk. I don't want this job out of personal glory or perks. We're spending money on this, unlike other US presidents like the one we have now, making money off their political position. We're doing the opposite. I'm doing this because I think I have a sense of duty to give back to a country that has given me far more than I have a right to even enjoy. And, we can, and I know we can do it. And so that's my political strategy. Speak the truth and let the people decide. And I think that many people in that base, they're not part of a one-man movement. It's for this country. And I'm a new guy, so it takes a little bit of time to build that trust. 40% of our donors are first-time ever donors to the GOP compared to 2% for normal Republican candidates. So I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, black or white, I don't care. We're pro-American movement. And if you stand for those values, we're on the same team. And my gut instinct is we're going to win this thing in a landslide. When's, when's the next debate? September 27th, I think. Is so Trump Wednesday. participating in that one? Do you know? I, I or is think, he still staying I mean, out of it? You have to ask him. Yeah, you guys no. know him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ask him. I, I think he's probably not doing the second one. My guess is he does the third one. But I'm cool either way. I'm, I'm standing for what our agenda is. I'm sure he'll show up at some point in the process, which is all I think that's required. Awesome. 
Yeah. Well, I think this is amazing, man. We really appreciate awesome, you coming. Thanks for having me. I love your approach. I like how, yeah, Thank like you. you said, fresh legs, outside look on the Thank whole you. system. And you could tell that just by sitting with you, you could tell that, you know. Yeah. Thank you, man. Honest I guy. It. And yeah, wish you the best of luck, man. I Thanks, can't wait guys. to see what you Let's do. Let's stay in touch. And, Let's do and it. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. 100%. Awesome. Appreciate it, man. Let's go. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks.